but I'd like to pray and then open this text and convince you who the 144,000 is. I probably won't be able to do that because as you'll see, I've got five possible explanations and I am tossed between number four and five myself, so maybe you can help me get there. But let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time and uh, we'll begin. Our Father, we do love you and we do thank you for this book of books, uh, this book that you revealed to the Apostle John and you revealed it to him to give to your people at that day that needed it desperately and we are among them and need it desperately ourselves. So we do pray your blessing upon your word preached in Christ's name, amen. So how would you like to be me? Um, I lucked out that Dr. Stone is not here, but, but I know he's watching via live stream because that's what he does. But how would you like to be me and be given this text to preach, illuminating you all on this, on this explanation of this 144,000 that has been a, a debate in Christianity for 2,000 years, and, and worse than that, your pastor, your boss is your preaching professor. So you know, make no mistake about it, I try to get him my manuscripts in plenty of time for him to redline them, which he does. <laughs> he, he, uh, he, he muted me greatly this morning that you, you wouldn't have known that, but he did. I appreciate that. Uh, and, and I have loved Loved, loved, as I can speak for Seth Miller, who's probably watching in, uh, via live stream in Idaho, and others in that class. We have loved learning to preach from Dr. Stone. We have a blessing, as we all know. Um, but to further complicate these things, uh, sitting among us is also my professor from seminary who taught me the book of Revelation. So I made sure that this week I at least got some FaceTime so I wouldn't drastically make the mistakes and got some hints from Dr. Dunson, who I just loved to death uh, in this class. And I remember sitting there, I think I may have told some, may, most of you this, uh, when he was uh, opening up the book of Revelation and talking about the different views of Revelation, the futurist view and all that, and he, and he just talked about the... Uh, the museum, art museum view, and how the bowls and the trumpets and the seals were basically pictures in an art gallery of the same thing from different, and I was just like, whoa, I get that. And it was wonderful, and it was wonderful. So we're going to try to deal with this text tonight, and <clears throat> I got to tell you, we got a doozy. And forgive me for if, if it looks like I'm reading more than I'm preaching, because that's what I'm doing. I don't want to say anything that I shouldn't. But we got a doozy tonight, and to bring us to date, last week, Dr. Dunson himself powerfully finished Revelation chapter 6, 
with the fifth and sixth of seven seals. And if you recall, that fifth seal was the crying out for justice of those murdered, slain, martyred for their faith. They cried in verse 10 of chapter 6, and I love this, Sovereign and holy Lord, how long? You know, those of us in Christendom that believe in a sovereign God and a holy God are in pretty good standing when we know that those that were martyred from the faith, that's the first things that come out of their mouth, is sovereign and holy Lord. But then they asked, as we saw last week, how long? As we get ready for our eight verses tonight, I want you to think for a minute what it must have been like for those faithful hearing this letter, these words of John, for the first time. There must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of original hearers literally holding their breaths in meetings, in houses, and in public yet quiet gatherings of worship for persecution was great and those underneath the altar who died, uh, they were dying daily. And they must have been holding their breath as, as their pastors would be, pastors or elders did their best to contain their own emotion as they read John's recording of his visions to them for the first time. I imagine if it was a church like any other church, the pastors would have been the first ones to get copies of, these actual, uh, of the actual manuscripts that were copied, and I'm sure they read them before they read them to their congregation. And particularly in chapter 6, those words which they would have read would have been enormously emotional for them. And they would try their best to control that emotion as they read those words for the first time to their people. Most likely, most of the people who heard that letter being read for the first time either knew the Apostle John personally or certainly knew of his reputation, and not one of the original hearers wouldn't have known friends, family, relatives that would have given their life as a martyr for Christ. So think about what it was like to be a first century believer hearing these words of John for the first time under terrible Roman persecution. They would have had in their minds as, as the pastor or elder were reading the, the words, oh, I wonder what happened to my mom and dad. They gave their life for Christ as martyrs. Wonder what happened to them. It would have been on their minds and hearts as they heard John's words read. Quote, they were given white robes and told to wait and rest just a little longer, the pastor read, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who will also be killed as they themselves have been. Imagine hearing those words 
Can't you just hear the pastors making comment? It, if it must be us, we know as John saw them, they're waiting for us. We will stay strong. We will be faithful to the Lord Jesus as they were faithful to him. As Christ our Lord was faithful to us to the end. Those words would have pierced them as they realized they could be next. And those very words that John had wrote could be a direct prophecy of their own martyrdom. God himself had given them a glimpse as to the fate that just might await them. The pastor would then continue reading, as we did last week, about the sixth seal, God's judgment, the earthquakes, the leveling of mountains, the very elements, moon, and stars, and sky showing the wrath that's coming. The voices of the very ones the voices of the very ones who killed their loved ones. The loved ones who are waiting for them underneath the altar saying, how long? The very people that killed their loved ones. As the pastor read, will cry out that the very boulders of mountains fall on them as not to face this wrath The wrath of the very Lamb of God that they spurned and the church which they mocked and his followers who they killed. He gets to the last words of chapter 6, the pastor does, and he says, For that great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? Brothers and sisters, our text tonight, these eight words in chapter 7, answer that question. Who can possibly stand on that great day of wrath? As we stand now for the reading of the text of Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8, brothers and sisters, if you take nothing else away tonight, <clears throat> if you take nothing else away from the rest of the sermons that we will have in Revelation, take that away. Take away the thought of the first century Christians listening to that and being comforted by those very words. This was not some speculative tribulation period taking place after a rapture that was going to happen someday, maybe thousands of years in the future. No, John's revelation to these people was from their heavenly Father directly to them and those little churches they were in, right where they were, trying to both stay faithful to Christ and alive, sane, taking care of their loved ones and each other. As this is our last worship service together in 2020, that sounds just about like us. 
And this book is just as much for us as it was for those first century hearers. So as we're standing, let's read together. Revelation chapters, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 to 8. I'll read, you follow. Verse 1. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe from the, of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, by my count, my 20-minute sermon is over eight minutes in. So, you know, that's one of the things we did learn in preaching class. Uh, and if Jordan said it once, he said it uh, many, many times. He said, they'll forgive you for anything except being long. And if you're short, it hides a multitude of sins. <laughs> So we'll be short tonight, so we better get going. If there's anything that's that's generated much speculation in the book of Revelation, it's numbers. We've already talked in preceding weeks about the number seven and the cycles of seven between the seals, trumpets, and bowls as three pictures of the same scenery. Of course, there's 666 which I promise we will not get close to tonight. (laughs) Then there is a thousand. Notice I didn't say 1,000 because the text doesn't say 1,000. It says a thousand. And 12, both of which we will discuss tonight. And of course there is 144,000 identified both here in chapter 7 and in chapter 14, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight. You know, where I grew up in Lewiston, Idaho, I lived in Portland, uh, Milwaukee, Oregon, until I was a freshman in high school, and my parents moved to um, a house in Lewiston, Idaho, and they lived in that house until they passed away. And In that town of Lewiston, there is a fella, and I'll just, you wouldn't know him if I said his whole name, but we'll just call him Steve, because that is his first name. And Steve is, if anything, uh, known by almost everybody in that town. And Steve was a teacher at the high school, a part-time teacher, may have been a part-time coach. I think he may may, may even coach the... the, uh, uh, chess team or something. He's a brainiac guy. 
But Steve is a Jehovah Witness, and he is a good one. And all my life, I would see, and I must have seen him 25 times at least on Saturdays with his Jehovah Witness bag knocking on doors. And I was alone in my uh, condo um, before Lisa and I got married, and uh, I got up. I, maybe I might have made a cup of coffee. I don't remember what I was doing, but I saw a familiar uh, silhouette going up the steps <laughs> to our little, my little condo. And I went to it, and it was, of course, Steve. Hi, how you doing? I'm from the Jehovah Witnesses. And, you know, against my better judgment, I said, you know, come on in. You know, I'll, I'll talk to you. And Steve gave me some, wanted to give me some Watchtower books, which I wouldn't take. And, and I just said, can you just tell me, uh, how can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die? I said, because I will ask you the same question. And we talked for about a good portion of an hour, and he, he would come back to Revelation chapter 7 time and time again, talking about heaven and the 144,000. And Steve assured me that because I was living a Christian life, I would not be damned to perdition, but I would go to this kind of secondary level, heaven, but that I should be working for Jehovah. And I asked Steve, I said, well, Steve, are you part of the 144,000? And he just said, oh, he just laughed, of course not. No, he goes, I, I would never be a part. And I said, you know, you're the most faithful Jehovah Witness I've ever, ever known. Why wouldn't you be a part of that 144,000? And I'm not sure if deep down he maybe thought he had a chance and he was just being uh, overly cautious or humble. But he just says, I have no chance. And I remember saying, so Steve, let me ask you. The way I understand it, if you're right, you and I are going to go to the same place when we die. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I said, but if I'm right, we're not going to be going to the same place. Because your understanding of Jesus Christ is different than mine. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't take that for an answer. We were going to be at the same place no matter what. And I said, see, I, I don't think I've seen Steve since. But I often thought to myself, what, what in the world, what, what is the benefit of that? He, they believe in 144,000. And that is just the first of many, many uh, uh, explanations of this doctrine. But <clears throat> tonight, in the short time that we have, we're going to take a look at this text under two headings, just two. First, we're going to look at the timing of the discovery of the 144,000 in verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, we're going to look at the options of the identification of the 144,000 and their, and their sealing as key to their identity in verses 4 to 8. So let's talk first about the timing of the discovery of this 144,000 in verses 1 through 3. Before we can even have a, begin a go at understanding John's listing of the sealed 144,000 and their identity, we must understand the parenthetical nature of this chapter 
chapter 7 in the book of Revelation. As we've already discussed, John has just finished revealing the sixth seal as being the eschaton, the end of the age, the final judgment. And before the seventh seal, the entirety of chapter 7 is laid out for us as a parenthesis showing details of what takes place before that sixth seal. This is repeated a little later exactly the same way as we have another parenthetical uh, text between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet separated the same way in Revelation chapter 10, 1 through 11, 13. These two parentheses are both designed to do two things for us. Number one, they are to assure the church, and we call the church those sealed here to the Lord, that they're under his protective care and they're, and they're not going to face that final judgment. And number two, both evoke this drama of the delay in final judgment to those martyrs' laments in 6.10. Here's the text. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, if you look back, it pretty much matches those four horses that we saw at the beginning of chapter 6. And we saw at the end of that sixth seal, the the skies turned inside out, the mountains fell, and the angels that are going to do that destruction are told in our text that they are to wait, and they're not to do that yet until those that are going to be sealed are sealed. So that puts our text here in chapter 7 right in the middle uh, between those four horsemen and before the cataclysmic end of the age in the sixth seal. Notice first the four angels match restraining judgment. For no harm will come to the earth until the servants have been sealed. The parenthetical understanding here is vital to the interpretation of the 144,000 in verses 4 through 8. Let's just assume that that we're correct on that interpretation of the parenthetical uh, uh, chapter 7. So let's try to answer that question, who are then these 144,000? We have to deal, when trying to understand who they are, three features of interpretation of this group. And here they are. Number one, we have to discern, A, or number one, are they literal? Is the 144,000 the exact number, or is it or could it be figurative, standing for something else? That's number one. Two, are they prophetical, meaning are they for a future time that's going to come, or are they for the present, the time of the writing, or as we would look at the time of that writing now, the past, but still the present for us? 
So we've got a literal question, and we have a timing question. And finally, three, are they literal Jews, or are they representative? So every one of the five views I'm going to put forward to you has a different slant on those three pieces. This causes differences in the, uh, when those three fe- features are mixed, giving us these five historical options. And there are more than five, to be sure, but there are five dominant interpretations that we'll take a look at. <clears throat> first, the first interpretation we'll call literal, future, and national Israel. 144,000 are the literal ethnic Israelites who are saved. There is no one that would hold to that position that would not take a futuristic look or belief in the book of Revelation, that everything is designed to be a future prophecy. It's always based on an understanding that the book is futuristic. We describe this as literal future, and national Israel. I have to tell you, I have held that position longer than I've held the one that I have now. Um, I was telling somebody earlier, um, I brought the big gun with me tonight. (laughs) The big one. This was the treasure of my life around 1982. And I'd like to read for you what I wrote in the front of this Bible. And by the way, this is nothing but a Cambridge wide margin uh, King James Bible that I had interleaved with an extra 100 pages in the middle and 100 pages on each end of the text. And I will tell you, this thing for years was the most dear thing in my life and still is in a lot of ways. But I wanted to read you what I wrote on, (laughs) Uh, there's so many cool things in here I could read to you. Uh, Here's a good one. A well-used bathtub and an unused Bible both produce a Pharisee. Uh, When I pray, I sin. When I preach, I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of and my tears need washing in the blood of Christ. A quote from a guy by the name of Bishop Barkley, a couple of quotes from Jonathan Edwards, and as I turn to the first page in here, I've written a date, October 21st, 1982, and I can promise you when I read this that when I wrote this, drops of tears dropped from my eyes onto this page. I was dead serious in everything that I wrote on this page. To whom it may concern, please know that you now hold in your hands the most precious thing I own, the Holy Bible. If lost, please return it. I would be deeply grateful. If you stole this book from me, you had better return it. No questions will be asked because I am praying that God will at least put you in the hospital for messing with his word and one of his children. Okay? I was serious. If you found this book by rummaging through my belongings, 
because myself, my family, and about 100 million people around the world have suddenly vanished. Listen very carefully. Are you listening? (laughs) Thank you. Whatever you do, do not take a mark on your hand or on your forehead. If you do, you will be damned forever in hell. You must refuse that mark and be beheaded for Jesus Christ to be saved. Thank you, Mark James Trickstad. <laughs> my P.S., my address is in the front of this book if you have the Bible. <laughs> and it was. That is the dispensational position. That is interpretation number one. And I say that because I believed every word of it. Oh, and by the way, the last thing on that page, on the first page, is this. <clears throat> My address is in the front of the book. And, it's, and I said, by the way, here's four books you need to have if you have this Bible. One, the Holy Bible, AV 1611. Two, Strong's Concordance. Three, Fox's Book of Martyrs, because that's what you're going to do. And four, Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth, because you will need to know what's happened. I was as serious as that as I have been serious in any seminary class I've taken. And I say that with all humility and with all sincerity, because some of my best friends still hold that position. And whether we think it's correct or not, I don't. I think of my friend, Randy Olson, who many of you have met. I would trade being right, which I think I am, on the millennium and how to interpret the, the book of Revelation, which he is not. I would trade my belief for his if I could have half of the love of Christ that my brother has. Half. That I had a heart for people like my brother has, that many of you have met. I'll never forget, he was a pastor of a church near Seattle, Washington. It was one of the, it was a tiny little church, maybe 40 people in it. And I was visiting him, and we'd get up in the morning, and we'd, you know, as most church plants do, you've got to set up at There was nobody that did the setup except Brother Randy. He did everything. Still does everything in his church in Clarkston, Washington now. He was the one that was here who's preached over 4,000 sermons in his life. And I'll never forget, we were setting up, and one of the parishioners came in, the first one that came to the church, and they had a little Down syndrome child, little boy that was probably four or five years old. And if you know my, my friend Randy, he's, if he would see that child, he would go, hey, come here, just gregarious. And I stood there and watched this little boy run to his pastor saying only one thing, Mr. God, Mr. God, Mr. God. And Randy took that little boy and just hugged him and kissed him. And, and I just thought, Lord, I want a heart like that for people. But last time Randy and I was there, I said, Randy, do you really think they're going to build that temple and do sacrifices in the millennium? 
He said, yes, I do. And I said, why? I don't care. They're going to do it. (laughs) So I say that to say any of these positions, we can't take them as a test of orthodoxy, of salvation, of spirituality, of, of godliness. We can't do it. But that's number one interpretation, the literal dispensational, future national Israel, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes put together and saved in the millennium after the rapture. Number two, some length 144,000 to the prophecy in Romans chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, that ethnic Israel will be saved at the second coming. This we could describe as the figurative future national Israel position. They believe that it's future. They believe that it's going to be national Israel, actual Jews. But they believe that that number 144,000 is figurative. Now the point here, it's important to know that even many who believe in the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation see this number as figurative. At this point, we have to ask how a literalist could come up with a figurative number. And this is how they do it. And it's basically the same way that I would do it today. They get it from Revelation 21 with the description of of the city of Jerusalem with 12 apostles on a foundation and 12 um, tribes of Israel as the foundation. 12 times 12 is 144,000. 144 times 1,000, which is a... Uh, a, a number of huge completeness, and that's where they get that figure of 144,000, which they would say is figurative, but yet future and national Israel. That's number two. Position number three is very similar to number two. The third major interpretation that we'll call uh, figurative past national Israel. It's just the same as number two, except that that figurative number of 144,000 are Jews saved and emerging after the literal destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They have the same belief that it's a, that is a figurative number because it's a, a large number, but the, it's figurative, but it happened in the past and it was national Israel. Position four. This is the predominant, amillennial, historic Presbyterian position. We'll call this one number four. And this one would be figurative, past slash present, and not national Israel, but a representation of the entire people of God. Although not in our text today, these 144,000 are linked to the future clarification Uh, of a second glance at this number uh, right below our text today where it says, and I looked again and there was a man, uh, a number of that no man could count. So this is figurative, past, present, in that it, it incorporates the past and the present and will end at the eschaton, the second coming, the sixth seal. The fifth and final interpretation has also a really good foundation. And this is what I'd never heard of this position until I was studying for this sermon. And the fifth and final interpretation also is the same figurative past-present 
before the sixth seal, and it's not national Israel. It's a representation of all that were saved, but here's the different twist in the, in the fifth interpretation. The only difference is the structure and explanation of the 12 tribes as symbolically listed in a symbolic battle formation, and it's a census. The reason for this is that the other mention of the 144,000 in Revelation 14 lists those that are part of that as, quote, male virgins, a way to explain those that were of conscription age for military service. The reason for the census in the Old Testament, every time there was a census in the Old Testament, the reason was, was to determine the military strength of the nation. You'll see this in Numbers 1, Numbers 18, Numbers 20, Numbers 26, along with similar groups in both 1 Chronicles 27 and 2 Samuel 24. So it's the same interpretation, basically, as the traditional amillennial Presbyterian interpretation, except he is saying that they're there for a reason to show a battle formation and senses for warfare. And he's got some really cool ideas. And I don't have time to go into them, but also to prove his point, he goes into the, the actual ordering of those 12 tribes, which we're just not going to have time to go through today. But it's very, very interesting. I wish I had time for a detailed plus and minus account of the arguments pro and con of all these five, because many of us in this room can, can most likely say two things about these positions. Number one, we can probably say at one time, as I've just demonstrated in our Christian lives, we've held to different positions. I say in my parentheses, show your old Bible, which I've already <laughs> done. <clears throat> Number two, we know right now, and this is the point that I had made earlier, right now we know great brothers and friends of the faith, godly ministers, preacher, men of God, men in this church who I love and adore that know the scriptures better than me that would hold to a different position here. As for me, before this study, I would have put myself solidly into that interpretation number four, no questions asked, never did but I'm intrigued by that military census uh, explanation and how the tribes are listed. And I want to study it out further. But as we close, I want to focus on what the book of Revelation says, not about the characteristics of who those 144 are. You can make up your own determination of that. I want to talk about very quickly as we close the character of those that are sealed from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation mentioned these sealed believers. And they mentioned four characteristics. Characteristic one. These Christians have truly believed that the, that the Lamb has purchased them by the price of his own blood. We see that Revelation 5, verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 11. 
Those sealed believers believe the Lamb has purchased them by the price of His blood. Number two, they believe that one's desire to keep God's commandments is mandatory. And we see this, and we see them keeping God's commandments in Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 12, verse 17, Revelation 14, 12, and Revelation 22, 3. Number three, they are convicted that their own sin has led them to repentance and a renewal of a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're redeemed. They've been saved by grace through faith. You see this in Revelation 2, 4 through 5, Revelation 3, 17 through 19. And finally, these that are sealed are willing to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of unbelievable pressure and believe on him ultimately to their own death. We see that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, Revelation 12, 11, and 17, and Revelation 19, 10. So I would ask you, no matter what position you would take on this 144,000 identity, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased you by his blood? Do you believe and desire to truly keep the commandments of the Lord? Are you so convicted that of your own sin that it has led you to repentance and renewal of a new relationship with Christ? And finally, are you willing, as we saw last Sunday night, are you willing to bear witness to the Lamb of God in the midst of pressure and persecution, ultimately and totally to your own death. If you are, you are sealed. And that is the important aspect. And whether you are part of that 144,000, which I think you are, or if you are at least part of as Jordan will preach next time about this uh, uh, number of all nations that are too big for any man to number, you are part of the faith. And that is the most important thing. I have in my notes here, uh, we end where we started with the first century believers. And the important thing is, as mentioned earlier, is not really where you're going to come down and can you defend it clearly, uh, the position on what you believe the 144,000 are. The question is this, when you read the book of Revelation, do you believe it's written for you and applicable for you right now where you are, just like those first century believers and if the answer to that is yes, we are on good footing, brothers and sisters, to move forward. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we do thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for my friend of a lifetime, Randy, Pastor Olson, who believes differently than me on this topic. I thank you for 
uh, my friend Ken Miller, who's probably live streaming with us with his son Seth tonight. And Lord, I thank you for that time when he came to visit me in Florida and we nearly came to blows over the doctrines of grace because I thought he was just so out of step. How could somebody believe in a Calvinistic God? Yet, Lord, here I am. Years later, by your grace, totally changed in what I believe about you. And I think I'm right. But, Father, you are untouchable. Your grace touches us when nothing else can. And, Father, we love you for it. We thank you for this word that is applicable and alive to us, just like it was those first century, uh, belie- uh, to those first century believers who knew by name those that were martyred for their faith in chapter 6. Bless your people tonight. Bring us back for a new year, 2021, to praise you and to love you again. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our hymn of response. All glory be to Christ. Amen.